you're staying in the room here with us, I want to invite you to take out a copy of God's Word. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, beginning a new sermon series this morning. Matthew chapter 5. There were sermon notes out there. So if you didn't get sermon notes and you want sermon notes, just make your way out. They're right there at the doors. Alex is standing right beside them, uh, right outside there. So if you need sermon notes, you can go grab those. Uh, If you are actually visiting with us for the first time while you're out there, grab a green book inside that. If you'd like for us to pray for you in some way or if there's any way for us to connect with you, we would love to do that. You can fill that out. Or on the back of your liturgy guide, there's a QR code as well. Uh, So thankful that we're here. We're going to be walking through a new sermon series beginning this morning, ending the last Sunday in July. So we're going to take our time. We're going to be settling in. And what we're settling into is the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which spans from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. This Sunday is the week after Easter. And last week, we saw that through his resurrection... Jesus has demonstrated clearly that he is the rightful king of the universe. We saw last week that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And we saw that through his death and resurrection, King Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom. Now, his kingdom is a both and kingdom. Are you with me? A both and and kingdom. The kingdom of God is both here right now, present among us, though imperfect and though impartial, it is here right now, and it is coming one day. One day in the future, it will be fully consummated. It will be here in full. It will spread to the ends of the earth. It is both present and future. Now, here's what happened when you first believed the gospel. You were reconciled to God, and you were redeemed from the penalty of sin. However, faith in Jesus also ushered you into this kingdom that Jesus brought to earth. You are a citizen of God's kingdom. You belong to his kingdom, a kingdom that is now and a kingdom that is later. That's who you are. An important question then to ask is, how are we supposed to live in this new kingdom? How are we supposed to live? Are there particular expectations? You know, if you've ever changed jobs, raise your hand if you've had a job and then you changed jobs, but the, but the work stayed the same. So you didn't have to learn a new skill, same skill, new job, raise your hand. All right, for those of you that have done that before, what's hard about that? It's not the task that you have to do, right? Because you, you already know how to do those. It, the hard part about changing jobs when you're not changing tasks is learning the new culture of the new job. It's, it's a culture that may be different from the culture of your past job. And so it takes a while for you to adapt to the personalities of the people you're working with. Maybe your boss allowed for some things that this boss doesn't allow for. Uh, it, it, it's, it's challenging to adapt to the new culture, but as challenging as it is, it is absolutely necessary for you to learn how to live and how to function in this new environment that you're in. You have been ushered into, brought into a new environment, the kingdom of heaven, right now on earth. And so we need to learn the culture of this kingdom. 
So over the next three and a half months, we're going to walk verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 to explore what King Jesus expects of kingdom citizens like you and me. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. In the sermon, Jesus is essentially giving us an orientation for the kingdom of heaven. He outlines the cultural expectations. He outlines the cultural norms of his kingdom. And and Jesus is both presenting a future vision. He's saying, hey, one day, this is what life will look like. It'll look just like this. But at the same time, he is inviting us and expecting us to begin to live that way right now. And that's why we're calling this series On Earth As It Is In Heaven, picking up on the language in the Lord's Prayer. That's what our lives should be about. Our lives on earth today should reflect the culture of heaven because we have been brought into it by the king of heaven. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus outlines the culture of his kingdom that he has inaugurated, that he has brought to earth, and he's calling us as his followers to adapt our lives to his culture. Sermon on the Mount shows us how to live in the present world as we will in the future world. As one writer put it, the Sermon on the Mount contains the language of life, the sign in the present of green shoots growing through the concrete of this sad old world, the indication that the Creator God is on the move and that Jesus' followers can be part of what he's now doing. Now, this is how Matthew's gospel has unfolded to this point. We're in Matthew 5. This is how it's unfolded. In Matthew 1 and 2, we learn about the miraculous incarnation of Jesus. He's born to the Virgin Mary. And then we learn about the events that surround his early childhood, the the wise men coming and visiting, uh, Herod trying to kill Jesus. And then in chapter 3, we fast forward to Jesus' baptism, the ministry of John the Baptist. And Jesus comes and asks to be baptized, and Jesus is baptized. And he's anointed as the Spirit descends from heaven like a dove. And then in chapter 4, we see Matthew tells us that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted. And toward the end of the chapter, Matthew comments about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, saying... From that time, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus calls his first disciples. He teaches, he heals people from every kind of affliction, and he even drives out demons. He does all of this we see in Matthew 4. And at this point, crowds begin to mount and they begin to follow Jesus. And this is how Matthew opens chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and what follows all the way to the end of Matthew 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you're probably familiar with it. A lot of people are. A lot of believers are. A lot of non-believers are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. It's where a lot of people say, oh, Jesus is an amazing teacher. Jesus, he's just, he's such a good teacher. I mean, I, I don't know if he's the savior. I don't know if he's, you know, all that y'all say he is, but he's a great teacher because, you know, we have stuff like the Sermon on the Mount. What amazing teaching is there? 
And yet, the Sermon on the Mount is probably one of the most misunderstood passages in the New Testament, precisely because you think you know what it says. And you don't appreciate that if you read it honestly, you probably have a serious problem with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You want me to give you some examples of what we'll encounter? Here we go. Here's one. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you're more righteous than the Pharisees, you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, here's another one. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Obviously. But then Jesus says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Okay, here's another one. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Isn't he just a sweet teacher? Just, oh, he's just so respectable. Come on, come on with him. He says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And then he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Sounds like a normal Tuesday to us, right? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And here's another one. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, even just a cursory reading of those passages, I know what you're doing. You're already doing it. You're already doing it because I did it. And I'm prone to do it every single time. You, you start to hear that and you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. But that's, that's not what he means. Did you not? Take out your eye and throw it away. He doesn't mean that. And you do it with all of these. The Sermon on the Mount is startling. The Sermon on the Mount is uncomfortable. We don't like it when people tell us how to live. Kids, raise your hand if you like it when your parents or teachers tell you how to live. Don't raise your hand. I know you don't. Don't lie. Don't lie. You don't, you don't like it. No one likes it. When someone, what do we say? If we feel like a friend is just, I don't know. Just overstepping a little bit, telling us what we need to be doing with our lives. It's not, it doesn't feel right to us. And what do we say? Hey, look, appreciate you. You're getting into territory that's none of your, oh man, y'all aren't with me on that one. All right, hang on. What is it? None of your what? Business. None of your business. This is none of your business. I'm going to warn you. I'm going to warn you over the next three and a half months, Jesus, he getting all up in your business. All up in your business. He gets real close if there's ever a time for you to, you know, stay home when you got the sniffles, it's probably the next three and a half months, all right? It's going to be uncomfortable in here. There, there are some things we got to deal with because I can promise you this. One thing I'm not going to do, I am not going to begin preaching these passages with a bunch of caveats. They're like, well, before we get started, you need to understand. We'll be prone to domesticate Jesus. We will be, we will be prone to defend him, run to his defense. No, that's not what he means. Maybe not. We're going to let him say what he said first, though. 
That's, that's what we're going to do first. We have to get over all of that. Where we come to passages like this and we say, well, he doesn't mean it like that. Because here's what we're, the truth. When we say things like that, what we're really saying is, I hope he doesn't mean that. I hope he doesn't mean it that way. And maybe he doesn't. But we have to get over that and we have to take Jesus at his word. We need the real Jesus. Not a fabrication that we create. We need the real risen Jesus to show us how to live on earth as it is in heaven. And we're going to begin this morning with verses 13 through 16. We're skipping the Beatitudes because I already preached a sermon series on the Beatitudes. If you missed that, you can go back on our website or our podcast and find that sermon series. We covered every single Beatitude in detail, and so we're not going to deal with them here. We're going to jump down and we're going to begin at verse uh, uh, 13 where Jesus says that his followers are salt and light. And this is what we see. The culture of the kingdom begins with the purpose of its citizens in the world. Why are we here? How should we orient ourselves in God's kingdom as we live in a world of decay and darkness? And I want to show you three things from this passage. Three things that I think are evident here. First, I want to show you a new identity. Second, I want to show you a clear purpose. And finally, a sobering warning. First, a new identity. Now, immediately coming out of the Beatitudes, Jesus abruptly uses two metaphors to describe who his followers are and what they will be like in the world. It's very abrupt and it's very clear, and it's a beautiful metaphor. He says, you are the salt of the earth in verse 13, and then he says, you are the light of the world in verse 14. As followers of Jesus... We are called out of the world to be salt and light in the world that is decaying and that is in darkness. Now, look, we're going to dig into the significance of the metaphors in the next two points. But, but what we need to observe first is that something happens to us when we begin to follow Jesus. Something happens to us. This is first. We see distinction here. When we enter the kingdom and we become kingdom citizens by faith and not by works, we are transformed into something new. We not only have a new purpose, but before we, before we have a new purpose, we become new people. We assume a new identity. And it's interesting that Jesus phrases this as a metaphor, not a simile. I think it's important. He says, you, he doesn't say you are like Salt. It says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. There's an emphasis here on transformation. This is who you now are in relation to me. Because you follow me, because you're united to me, and I'm the king of this kingdom, in this kingdom, you are salt and you are light. You are something new. It's, it's like Jesus is saying, if you belong to my kingdom, I am making you brand new. To follow Jesus is to be a new creation. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, notice what he says. He is a new creation. To be in Christ, to be a believer, is to be new. It's, it's, it's synonymous. The old, Paul says, has passed away. Behold, 
the new has come. It's something that's already happened. Now, again, it's this both and tension. We already are something new, and we are day by day being renewed into the image of Jesus. And one day in the future, we will be perfect. We will be perfectly new. But right now, that process begins, and we can truly say something new has happened. You see, believing in Jesus is more than just an intellectual decision. And I think that a lot of us, we, we think of it that way. When we talk about faith in Jesus with our kids, like we, we talk about like a decision that they have to make. You, you, have to, you have to believe. You have to trust in Jesus. Do you believe that he was who he said he was? Do you believe that he died on the cross? Do you believe that he was raised from the dead? Do you believe that that you can only be saved by him and his grace and not through your own works. And we get affirmations, yes, 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 yes. By all accounts, you're a believer. But, but what's minimized and what's actually happening when that occurs and the Spirit regenerates your heart and you do believe those things, you are transformed. It doesn't just involve a change of mind. It involves a change of heart. It involves a change of life. After we believe in Jesus... Our orientation toward Jesus and toward the world is flipped. We are called out of the world and into Christ. Through faith in Jesus, we are united to Jesus and we are distinguished from the world. And that's what's obvious here, the distinguishment from the world. So uh, John Stott, this is what he says. The Sermon on the Mount is built on the assumption that Christians are different. It's important right out the gate. Christians are different. He says, and it issues a call to us to be different. The essential difference between the Christian and the world remains. And he goes on to say, we might say that they are as different as chalk from cheese. John Stott, you just have to know him, I guess. Chalk from cheese. He says, We serve neither God nor ourselves nor the world by attempting to obliterate or even minimize this difference. You have been made new through your faith in Jesus. And he's showing us you are salt, you are light in a world of decay, in a world of darkness. You are distinguished from the world. That's what these metaphors of salt and light teach us. The world is evidently a dark place with little to no light of its own. The world is evidently a decaying place with a constant tendency toward deterioration. We were once those who were stumbling in the darkness. We were once those who were dead in our sin. But now, because Jesus is king, and we have united ourselves to him by faith, We not only walk in the light of Christ, we are the light of the world. We not only have new life in Christ, we are the salt of the earth. Our orientation has changed toward Jesus and toward the world. It has flipped on its head. Christians still live in the world. And I don't believe that Jesus is calling us to retreat from the world. Quite the opposite. But we are not of this world any longer. When Jesus says that we are salt and light, he's saying that our lives are now defined in terms of our relation to King Jesus and no longer in relation to anything in the world. And another way to say that is 
We live for Jesus now. That's, that's top priority. We live for Jesus. You can do that in your job. You can do that in your family. You can do that in your hobbies. But we live for him, not our careers, not our families, not approval of friends, not to prove ourselves worthy. We live in the world for Jesus. That's our new identity. Okay, there's also a clear purpose here, a clear purpose in this metaphor. And this is when we get into the metaphor itself. What does Jesus mean when he says that we are salt and he says that we are light? How does it function in the context? If we're salt and light, what are we supposed to be doing? Now, the first thing that we need to consider is the purpose of salt and light themselves. So at this time, actually for all time, if you, if you think about this, every home, however poor, used and continues to use salt and light. They're very, they're very necessary. They were necessary then, they're necessary now. Salt and light, especially in Jesus' day, were indispensable household needs. Light, don't really have to explain that very much. It obviously illuminated the darkness. You've got to have light if you're going to see, especially at night, whether it's in a room or it's lighting a home. Uh, when the sun went down, they'd light lampstands, candles uh, throughout the house, and they needed it. They, they depended on the light. Salt had a variety of uses, and we're not going to get into all the myriad of ways that people say that Jesus, how he intends this metaphor of salt, because salt was used in so many ways. It was used as a purifying agent. It was used for seasoning. It was used as a preservative. There's so many things uh, you know, that salt was used for. We use salt in the same way uh, today, um, but before refrigeration, salt was rubbed into meat for, for preservation, all of that. But I want to show you something. Both salt and light were actually used in relation to God's covenant with his people in the Old Testament. Salt and light. Now, light is easy to find. It does, you could, if you go in and you read the Old Testament, especially if you read Isaiah, the theme of light is all over the place, and it is in relation to the covenant. Salt is harder to find. I, I had to, I had to con- consult some commentaries because I was like, man, this is really good. This connects back so well. Is there anything with salt? And I'm just looking and reading. It's like, nah, not much. I mean, he poured some salt you know, on his food. It's like, oh, okay, hang on. Let me, what's the deep spiritual meaning behind that? He poured the salt on his food in the same way that God pours his spirit out. on. No, we're not doing that. Um, I wanted to find something legitimate. And it seems that salt was used in relation to God's covenant with his people because salt was used in the uh, sacrificial rituals. Uh, There there was something called covenant salt that was used. So both salt and light are used in relation to the the covenant. Light, especially in Isaiah, it, it was used to show that God's covenant will extend not just to the Israelites, but it will extend to include peoples from all nations. Both salt and light signal that God's covenant with his people has come. In other words, salt and light are a sign that salvation is here. So by identifying his followers as salt and light, Jesus is not just saying that we impact or influence a world that is in decay and is in darkness. And by the way, that's true. That's true. But he's not just saying that. He's also saying that we serve as agents in God's plan of salvation. 
We are signs that God's covenant is here. So these metaphors communicate two purposes. Two purposes. Have them in your notes. As salt, we participate with Jesus in the renewal and restoration of the world. This is where we need to see something. All of history, all of history is heading toward a glorious end. And this end, we we read in the scriptures, is actually a new beginning. And this new beginning has mysteriously and gloriously already begun with the arrival of Jesus through his, his birth and through his life and his death and resurrection. Through his work, Jesus accomplished not only the salvation of his people, but the future restoration of the whole world. And the primary reason the world is in decay is due to the world's inerrant rebellion against God as king. That's how the whole thing started. Decay began when sin entered the world. And how did sin enter the world? Sin entered the world through Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. Instead of submitting to God as their king and submitting to his ways, they asserted themselves as kings. They created their own way. And from that point forward, the world has been in decay. And so Jesus, he he calls us to be the salt of the earth. And, And one of the reasons is, We serve as agents of renewal in the hearts of men and women. He is bringing us back. He is restoring, renewing us back to what life was like in the Garden of Eden. That's the project that he is on in saving us. He's not just offering us forgiveness and then we just go on our merry way. No, he offers us forgiveness because he's restoring our hearts. He's making us new. We are new creations in him. And one day there will be a total new creation where we will dwell in perfection for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, and that's where all of history is heading. And so here and now, as the kingdom has been inaugurated in calling us salt in a world that's full of decay and deterioration, he's not just saying, hey, go be influences. He's saying, go be signs that there is hope for return, that decay is not the end of the story. That although Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden, because Jesus came and died and rose again, all of their descendants are now being welcomed back into the kingdom that they left and abandoned. We play a role in this work. By taking up his kingdom agenda, by centering our lives around the objective to do the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. We combat the natural moral decay around us with the culture of heaven. As we submit to Jesus in every area of our lives and in every space and sphere in our lives, we season the world with the kingdom's culture. Every time you demonstrate your love for others, Every time you demonstrate humility with your coworkers, every time you treat your boss or your employees or your parents or, or your children with dignity and respect, 
Every time you mess up in a big way, but then your response is admission, confession, repentance. When someone sins against you and then you respond, not with harshness or or grudges, but with grace and with forgiveness. And when you pursue reconciliation, when when you live your life this way, you are being the salt of the earth because you're not just you know, sprinkling in some good things here or there, what you are demonstrating to a world in decay is that renewal is possible because you are a walking example of it. You once were dead in sin, and now you are living your life according to the will of God on earth as it is in heaven, and you are a walking example of God's miraculous grace and its power to renew and restore a broken heart. This is what it means to be salt. Okay, so as salt, we we bring and we participate with Jesus in the renewal and restoration of the world. But as light, we move to the second metaphor, as light, we could say that we advance God's kingdom on earth. Now, what purpose does light serve? It's really clear. Light reveals, light illuminates. It illuminates the darkness. Last night, I was, I was sitting outside. I was re- reviewing the sermon. I heard something rustling uh, in the grass uh, behind me. I turn around. Uh, there, there are cats all the time that walk around. I assumed it was one of those. Uh, it did not look like a cat, so I, I got my flashlight. I shined it on over there, and all I saw were these eyes that were coming out, and I was like, I don't even want to know. Don't want to know. Going inside. I'm done. I don't want to know what that was, so I don't know what was in my backyard last night. Uh, But the light illuminated something, all right? And if I had just gotten a little closer to it, I would have been able to see it. So I I have a recent experience with the purpose of light in the darkness. It helped me know I needed to go in the house. Um, Listen, as we tell other people about Jesus, and as we call them to believe in him, we are shining the light of the gospel, The kingdom advances through gospel proclamation. As light, we bring truth and revelation to spaces of darkness. Now, this does primarily involve speaking God's word, speaking the truth, speaking the gospel, because the gospel is the only hope for a world in darkness. Our only hope is that the light has dawned in the coming of Christ. So we tell that story. Now, the nation of Israel, if you, if you trace that story, they were called by the Lord, in part, one of the purposes of their existence was to be a light to the nations. So while they were called out, and they were set apart, and they were separated, and they were God's special uh, chosen people, part of their, the purpose of their existence was to be a light to the nations, meaning that the nations around them that were living in darkness would see a great light, a city that is set upon a hill. They would see it. They would see the glory of the Lord, and they would be drawn to it. And they would come, and they would seek out the, the God of Israel. And, and that light would shine in a couple ways, not only through their worship and, and their uh, proclamation of the truth and what God has revealed, but also through the way that they lived. They were meant to be not only set apart physically in a different land, they were meant to be set apart spiritually, morally. They were supposed to live according to God's standards, one of the purposes of the law. They were meant to be a light in the darkness. And as they oriented their lives around God's will, the nations would notice the distinctiveness 
And more importantly, they would notice the holiness of their God. The same is true for us. This is how it works. It's what it means to be light. We join Jesus in his kingdom-building project by speaking the truth and by living our lives according to the truth. When we live as light in dark spaces by doing good works, the light, not only of our lives, but of God's glory will be evident. And I love this surprising effect that Jesus shares. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Meaning, live your life in light of God's kingdom. Obey the Lord. Live a holy life. And when you do that, this is what he says, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When we live our lives according to the kingdom, when we live our lives on earth as it is in heaven, God is glorified as others see his amazing work in our lives and they praise him for it. Now, listen. The purpose of renewal and the purpose of kingdom advancement, the purpose of being salt and light, this purpose radically changes the way that you think about everything that you do. Every, th- this identity and this purpose invades every area of your life. N- nothing's off limits. At work, at home, the, the mindless things that you do, every space that you find yourself in, once you see yourself as someone who belongs in God's kingdom, and once you see that in God's kingdom you have been called to be salt and light, working for a paycheck or working just to advance in your career, as noble as those things are, they won't be enough once you really get this. In all of those ordinary uh, uh, maybe boring, maybe even frustrating aspects of your job or your, your daily tasks, find immediate redemption and purpose once you see that Jesus expects you to be salt and light. In everything that you do, you are an agent of God's creation, renewal, mission. In everything that you do, you are an agent of his kingdom-building project. You bring life preservers to a decaying and dying world. You bring light into the darkest of places. How? Just simply by ordering your life according to God's will. And where can you do that? Everywhere. Just by speaking the truth and living it before other people. And if this seems impossible to you, then then you definitely don't understand how you're able to do it. We are salt and light not because, you know, we're somehow super qualified. We are salt and light because we're connected to Jesus. We witness to the kingdom through our words and our life because we are known by the king. What would it look like if you intentionally sprinkled the salt of the kingdom in your spaces of influence? What would it look like if you shined the light of the kingdom at work, at home, at the ball fields, at school? How would those living in decay and darkness be impacted? What would they see? If you started sprinkling truth, goodness, beauty, love, mercy, grace, forgiveness, hope, everywhere you went, People would see the real Jesus. Hearts would be renewed 
God would be glorified, and at bare minimum, decay and darkness would be revealed for what they are. So we have a clear purpose. But finally, got to leave you with a sour note. Um, there's a sobering warning here. I'm leaving you with one because Jesus does. I told you. I told you. I'm not, I'm not defending him. There's a sobering warning in this passage. And I hate to tell you this. Um, the warning might be the main point. You want to read it with me? Let's look at it. Verses 13 and 14 again. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. But a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Okay. We're prone to skip past the negative warning and focus on the positive purpose of the metaphor. We want to ask, what does it mean to be salt and light? Jesus asks, what if you fail? to be salt and light. We desperately need to hear this warning. If salt loses its saltiness, Jesus says, how can it be restored? Do you know the answer to that question that he wants you to, to gather? It can't. That's, that's the implied answer. It can't. That's silly. Its purpose is lost. And so, since it's no longer good for anything, Jesus says, it will be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What good is a light that is kept hidden? What's the answer? No good. No good. How can a lampstand light up a room if it's covered? If a city on a hill should shine brightly in the night sky, what good is it if it's hidden? It isn't. The purpose of light is to shine. The purpose of salt is to be salty. If the salt isn't salty and the light is covered, they are useless. Listen closely to King Jesus. Our public witness for Jesus is only as effective as our personal pursuit of Jesus. If we do not function as salt and as light in the kingdom, then we are not living according to our purpose, no matter how plugged in we are at church. If we're not announcing and advancing the gospel and the kingdom through lives of holiness and through gospel proclamation, then we are walking contradictions. It's always interesting to me. The identification that people who want nothing to do with the church that they have with Jesus on this topic. It's interesting to me. One of the primary reasons non-believers in our city, and I can say that confidently because I talk to a lot of them all of the time. One of the main reasons that they want nothing to do with the church is a problem that Jesus often identifies himself. There's no room for hypocrisy in the kingdom of heaven. It is not welcome. Now, now, that doesn't mean 
that genuine Christians aren't sometimes hypocritical. It would be hypocritical for me to say that, okay? That you can't be a Christian if you're hypocritical. That's not, that's not what Jesus is saying, and that's not what I'm saying. The point is that when hypocrisy shows up in our lives, it should seem as foolish to us as unsalty salt or turning a light on and then covering it up. The next time that you notice that your actions and your words are not lining up with the way that you believe about Jesus, please go in a room, turn on a lamp, and then throw a blanket on top of it. To remind yourself, don't really do that, but to remind yourself of how foolish it is to not live according to kingdom principles while you're believing in the king. A simple way of saying this is that Jesus actually cares about the way you live. He cares about the decisions you make and the things that you do. It matters. There's a grave danger for us because it's very easy in our culture to get very close to the kingdom and completely miss out on it. That's, that's his warning here. Just keep it in mind. We can go to church, join a life group, participate in ministries, serve, have the best theology known to man. And we can do all of that apart from living out the implications of the gospel. And if that's us, we don't understand what it means to follow Jesus. We can't follow Jesus without following Jesus. We can't claim a space in the kingdom, a seat at the table, without living like a kingdom citizen should live. So, listen, this is an invitation to check yourself. It's an invitation to me to take inventory of my own life. Who is your king? Who is your king? I'm not talking about your religious persuasion. Who is your king? To whom or to what are you giving the allegiance of your heart? What are you living for? Or do you even care about how you're living? If you're not striving to live according to the culture of the kingdom, and if you're not striving to show Jesus to others through your good works and gospel words, then this is the, this is the warning. We're as useless as salt that has lost its effectiveness and as foolish as covered lights in the kingdom. If you're in the kingdom, you have to live as salt and light. You have to season this world with the ways of the kingdom. You have to shine with the light of the glory of God in your words and actions. And, and, and what a privilege that we get to join Jesus in this redemptive work. So let's remain faithful. And I'll be honest with you, one of the ways that we remain faithful is to confess and repent when we find out we have lost a little bit of saltiness and covered up our own light. When our faithfulness to do the will of God on earth as it is in heaven wanes, the faithful thing to do at that point is to cling to the cross of Christ afresh. And remember that our ability to function as salt and light is rooted in him. He is our only hope of renewal from decay. He is our only hope of light in the darkness. So look to him this morning afresh with faith and ask him to help you live in his kingdom as he would have you live. Let me pray for us and then we'll come to the table. Father, we are both 
excited and convicted by the words of Jesus here. It's exciting to see that, that he involves us in the kingdom, that we're not just recipients of grace, that we are then sent out on mission to live as, as agents in this project to bring others into the kingdom and for those who are in decay and those who are in darkness to, to receive renewal and to receive life. And so would you help us to be uh, uh, diligent in our pursuit of a life that reflects your glory? Would you help us to live our lives on earth as it will be one day in your glorious presence? Would you help us to testify to your great grace through the way that we live and through the words that we speak? And Father, would you convict us uh, where we need to be convicted? If we have not really cared about the way that we live for a long time, may this be the day that we look to you in, in faith and know that when we come to you, even if we're returning from years of disobedience and years of not caring at all about how we live, we don't receive a scolding when we come to you. We receive embrace and welcome and love and mercy. So we're grateful this morning. Would you help us to appropriate this passage in our lives? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.